It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. With this episode, we wrap up another season of Preachers on Preaching. We might be back in the fall under a different guise, but in the meantime, we wanted to leave you with a greatest hits of our last 17 episodes. So here they are, wisdom from a variety of voices, and I want to thank each of these wonderful people for taking the time to appear on the podcast, to share their story and their faith and their approach to the pulpit. I hope that you as a listener have gained as much as I have as an interviewer. I also want to be sure to thank really the most important folks in this entire enterprise, that is you, the people who are taking the time out of your own day and your own lives to dive into this podcast. I can't express my gratitude uh, eloquently enough. You've been terrific dialogue partners in all of this, and I appreciate the responsiveness and the emails. And you can keep on chiming in if you'd like to. You can always email me at preachers at christiancentury.org. Also, finally, many thanks to Neil Ellingson, who's done a wonderful job editing this podcast, especially this last one, splicing together many different voices. So here we go, the greatest hits of Preachers on Preaching. I read an article that you wrote uh, in Preaching Today about preparation for a sermon and the routines and, and even disciplines that you follow in order to to get yourself ready. Can you talk a little bit about the the integration of meditation and exercise and things that one might not think of as sermon prep that you practice? Yeah, sure. Um, well, let me give you a little bit of uh, the backstory. As a new pastor, I try to do all of my sermon prep in a single day on, on Thursday. So I would get up early. I, I would be reading the critical commentaries, the communicator uh, commentaries, uh, doing the outline uh, in the morning, uh, doing the manuscript in the afternoon, doing the study guide at night. And then when we added a second service and I was preaching a different sermon for the evening service and I was trying to prepare two messages in a day, it just felt really overwhelming. It was the, the worst day of the week for me. And then I happened to be back at my uh, seminary just north of Boston, and I, I walked into my professor's office, my professor of preaching, Haddon Robinson's office, and I said, Haddon, what are you learning about preaching these days? And he said, I've recently learned that creativity occurs over a 10-day cycle. And so if you want to prepare your, your best sermons, you need to start at least 10 days in advance so that you hit your creative peak at some point in this 10-day cycle. And so instead of preparing the sermon the Thursday before, I started preparing it two Thursdays before. Uh, I wasn't putting any more time into it. Uh, I was on a every other day rhythm to read, to outline. Um, but it felt much more relaxing, much more prayerful. And then um, I was having some problems with my eyes, and I was about to get some eye surgery. And so I, I found that... Um, I had a, a tough time looking at a computer screen and typing, and so I began to uh, dictate my uh, first drafts, and a volunteer typed up the draft, and I found that I had a more natural cadence when I was actually orally dictating the message into a recording device and typing it out. And then, uh, I can't remember how I, I discovered this, but I found that 
maybe it's because I'm restless by nature that I, I, w- I was more creative if I was doing my dictation and even my reading while walking. And, and so I, I began a practice of, of, of walking and reading, walking and outlining, walking and dictating my sermon. I know it sounds a little strange, but, uh, but I later learned that that a lot of poets and uh, great writers, I certainly don't put myself in the category of poet or great writer, uh, had a habit of uh, walking and uh, that, it, that it would stimulate both the left and right side of their brain. And so uh, they, they found they were more creative, and I certainly have found that for me as well. That was Ken Shigematsu. Here's Kaji Dosa. Well, I was definitely seeking before I went into ministry. I think I still would be. What was hard and this actually really drives my sense of what my call is or what my work is. Well, it's hard was to find a place where I could find other people who were in along the same journey. It was very, very difficult. Here I was in New York city feeling called to follow God. And there are like churches on every block. So where do you start? I think I probably would without the power of being able to create community, not know where to find it. And that was incredibly spiritually frustrating. And it leads me so much, drives me so much in my ministry now, because I think, what about the people like me who are so deeply yearning for this and have no idea where to go for it? Let me try to offer them something. And a lot of why our church is growing is because of these little conversations I have where I out myself as a minister and I have to deal with, there's always, I don't know if you have this, but for me, when I do tell people what I do, there's like this moment of, of horror where I'm waiting to see what the response will be. And, um, and most of the time it's favorable. And that's where, that's what's really been growing our, our growth. I mean, driving our growth here. You don't, you, you prepare a manuscript, but you don't preach off of it. Is that right? You said that you were right. earlier, you said you have an improvisational style. Yep. So, what role does the manuscript, do your notes outline, what role are they playing on a Sunday morning when you're preaching? Yeah, I would say there's a, a form of memorization I do. I'm perfectly capable of having a conversation. So I try to memorize the conversation I want to be having with the congregation. So in other words, like what are the general things I'm hoping that we talk about in that time? And I, if you listen to me and I guess my folks go back and a lot of them will read the sermon, the manuscript later. What they wind up saying is that I do stay pretty faithful to it, but I'm not sure I do. Uh, I never know in the moment. I, mm. I you're do. not conscious of whether or not you're deviating from the manuscript while you're preaching. Yeah, not too much. Not that conscious of it. And I, in a lot of ways I want to, like I do a lot more of my exegesis in the moment or at least that exegetical discussion in the sermon itself rather than as much in the written text. So I do all my research. I think it through. I write out the sermon. But if you go through my sermons, you might not see all that much of my uh, biblical exegesis. And it's not because I'm not doing it. It's just because I really, really like doing that with them. And it turns more into more like a Bible study conversation because we're in a small enough group that we can. Zach Eswine. Just leaping right into your latest book, Imperfect Pastor, which I've really been enjoying, and and just ask you a question about uh, a passage from that, which I'll read. Early in the book, you say this, that when you were starting out, you were asked or told, 
You're among the finest preachers I've heard, and you're so young. I can't wait to hear you in ten years. Well, ten years have long since passed, and I've not become what was once projected. So, what happened? Well, that's a great question, Matt. Uh, I think I think what happened involves my own heart, and it involves the cultural assumptions around me. You know, my own my own heart was just uh, trying to live up to that in all earnestness. You know, if God has gifted me in a certain way, then I want to go all out for Him and try to be all I can be and uh, and live up to whatever whatever those expectations were. And I think the cultural assumptions behind that, as I look back at it now, are so deadly, really. I can't wait to see you in 10 years was an earnest comment from an older gentleman, but uh, it's filled with sort of a celebrity, upward, upwardly mobile mindset, really, that somehow uh, to achieve greatness, uh, I wasn't I wasn't presently doing it. I would have to be 10 years from now and it would have to be something more than I am and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I just bought into all that with all my heart um, and I just crashed. You know, those assumptions can't sustain a soul or a ministry or a family and and, uh, that was certainly true of my life. Now we'll hear from Jan Rippentrop. What what do you think happens when a person gets up and proclaims the gospel and the word of God? Well, maybe I'm giving my own answer here. What what's going on in a sermon? What's the where's the magic? Where's the supernatural? Where's how is it distinct from stand up comedy? From a good storyteller? From Garrison Keillor? What's the what's the line of demarcation? Brilliant. This is the reason that I went to grad school. This question was percolating in the assembly that I served in Iowa City, Iowa. And that assembly was asking questions about how God is present. And some of the people in our assembly were answering that they could not presume upon God. Uh, and and I thought, oh, goodness, look at look at the patriarchs. They're presuming upon God what all is that, the time. What does that mean, presume upon God? What I mean is they're expecting things of God. They're expecting God to show up. And they're expecting, and, and yet people in the assembly I was serving uh, felt that that might not be right to expect mm. something of God, as though that would be putting too much upon God. Put the limit on God's freedom or... I, I can't say exactly what was behind that. However, I, I wanted to go and say, well, no, what can we say about how God is active within worship? I do think that the trajectory of God's promises, that that what Jürgen Moltmann says about promises is that they, they characteristically open to the future and never close. Uh, in that he says that the fulfilling of a promise occurs over time and that the fulfilling of a promise never fully closes it, but actually opens people up to new expectation. And then he connects then the promises in Hebrew scripture with the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, and then with what he talks about as eschatology and the coming of God. And so I see this movement from promises through the cross to God's coming as ways that we can talk about how promises that God opens and then delivers on across time actually do embody 
one of the ways that Christ is present to us or that God is present to us and makes things occur within our midst. And so, yes, that is uh, what I've come to really rely on and talk about as how do we expect that God is doing something here? How do we think about what God is up to? And thinking about it in terms of, of God's coming to us and God's promises. And here's Roger Nelson. What I was aware of, and that's why I went down this path, was what I was aware of was this sort of centrality of Scripture and people trying to people wrestling with what that lens meant as a way to understand the world. And while it didn't, while I put, I couldn't have pushed against it harder as a kid and as a young adult. Even through seminary, even through work in, uh, so, but at one point, uh, as a, I don't know, a late 30s probably, I was working in a church as a youth pastor. And I, pr- I began to preach with some regularity there. Um, and I'd already been doing a lot of speaking, but I started to preach and write, write sermons. And this is in this. Schenectady Reformed, First Reformed Church of Schenectady. And on a Saturday afternoon, while working on a sermon, trying to hammer out a manuscript, it's a painful, it's a painful, ugly process, uh, especially with ADD. Um, I stumbled across a phrase in Isaiah. I don't remember what it was. But I remember this sort of um, epiphany of I'd never seen that phrase. It was so beautiful, and it was so um, it opened up this window. And I thought I could dig around in this for the rest of my life, mm. just in that one phrase in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, and never run out of material. <laughs> Never run out of material. And, Isn't that the truth? Yeah. And it's the truth. And I've so it was part of a process of me moving towards preaching. And and so I've been at it now for, you know, sort of every Sunday for 13, 14 years. And and that sense of wonder and um so so much rich soil to dig around in hasn't gone away. Usually I'm wrestling with it, pushing back against it, stuck with it, but there is always, almost always something that makes me tilt my head like a dog that's hearing a whistle and, and, and th- help me think about things in a way that I... I I think I need. That's why the tethering sense. Why I I, uh, I need I need to be pulled back to that. And then I think my responsibility is to invite people into that. To invite people into that wonder, and to unfold that text in a way that engages them in their life. Because I got nothing to I got nothing to say. Next up, we've got Serene Jones. Do you think the church has an obligation to speak to the kind of, it's, I don't know if it's, if, if it's fear-mongering that, that Donald Trump is doing or if it's simply tapping into what's already there. Um, but I don't know. It's, I, I feel like 
in a strange thing here in a progressive church in Chicago, I, I, I have not met a single person who is supporting this guy. Um, so for me to get up in the pulpit and rail against him is just preaching to the choir. Um, but I also feel like we ought to be raising our voice somehow right now. Yes, we have to speak about it. Um, and even if you're speaking to the choir, the choir is a choir of bodies who have the capacity to also speak and act in the world. And, um, you know, to not speak out against it is to fall silent in the face of what I consider evil. And if we don't do that, what else is there for us to do? I mean, seriously, we're called to proclaim love. We're called to speak out against hate. God is a God of love who loves all all of creation. And if that's not what we are called to do and be in the world, then we have no purpose. So if we're not speaking out against Donald Trump in ways active and real, something's very wrong with the Christianity we think we're professing. When I started writing the Trauma and Grace book, uh, I was determined. um, It took 10 years to do it. I was determined to uh, figure out a theology of the cross that um, could take into it um, the reality of trauma. And I took up this mission in my own mind um, as I became increasingly aware as a minister of how when a pastor looks out on a congregation, you know, the chances are uh, the kind of rational, coherent, uh, well-grounded, emotionally stable person that one imagines oneself speaking to is very rare. And that the vast majority of people in the congregation um, are suffering uh, cognitively and emotionally from from wounds and from trauma that has never been addressed. So well, how does that affect the preacher's task? Um, and I thought I was going to, you know, unfold as a systematic theologian, a Christology that could hold that weight. One Christology that would Christology, yeah. And I never found it. I never, it never appeared. And one day, about eight years into the project, I realized that what happens on the cross is that we are in the mystery of God's freedom. We are saved. But it is not a theory. Um, And to make that reality come awake and be present to people is what preaching does when the cross is preached. And it's not tied to one set of theories. It's not so... The cross is stable. There is nothing... In all of human history, more stable than the cross. But the cross doesn't need a, quote, stable theology in order for its stability to be preached. And, and I think that's part of the power of the cross is it ruptures meaning. Um, it ruptures our attempts at coherence. It ruptures our um, desire to turn Christianity into a kind of logical whole that we can master and then deploy. It resists that at every turn. And that's partly why it speaks so powerfully to people who have been traumatized because trauma fractures meaning. Here we have Emily Scott. It's not a dinner party. Like, it's not always easy, which but I think is... But you're not important. guiding that part of the mm-hmm. liturgy. It's, it's And I think, you know, the idea that it's not guided is important to me because I do think that... Sometimes we like overfunction a little bit for our congregations and try and make everything easy for them. Um, and 
I think what that develops is like a lack of tolerance for discomfort in our, in Christians, Mm -hmm. which like, if we can't be uncomfortable, um, and we can't kind of like take risks together, then, um, I think that's really, that's not very gospel focused, you know, like Jesus doesn't call us into sort of, um, feeling really comfortable all the time or really good. (laughs) So you're going to have, so there is even some intentionality about letting what unfolds unfold and being with people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we could like really over-program it and have like a little card with a question for the day and like that kind of stuff. And I think that that, um, it kind of lets people off the hook of being with one another, um, and just, you know, facing the fear. (laughs) Sometimes there's just fear involved in it (laughs) and that's fine. Um, so we have our conversation and then, um, I stand up and we read scripture together and we usually do it in sort of like a Lectio Divina style where we, we read it a few times and I ask people to share a word or phrase that struck them in the text, um, and kind of begin to build that relationship with the scripture passage. Um, and then I preach, you know, an informal sermon. It usually has, um, sort of fragments of my own experience, little stories, a sense of, um, my own kind of confession of where I am with whatever I'm preaching on, hopefully. Um, and then open the, the, the sermon for, um, for sermon sharings. And we get kind of three or four little stories from folks in the congregation. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of like, Oh, okay. You know, that happened. Cool. And sometimes it's just absolutely devastating. The things that are shared, um, not in so much that they're like people sharing their deepest, darkest secrets, but just, um, the, the sense of vulnerability in the sense that, um, God is at work in people's lives and that they're able to tell those stories to a group and kind of the group can hold that. And now the voice of someone who isn't a preacher but has terrific insight into the pulpit, Bill Borden. Winnicott um, said, you know, Freud helped us think about inner realities and he helped us think about outer realities. But he said there's need for uh, a third statement where we think about the space between inner experience and outer reality. And he thought of that as transitional phenomena, he called it intermediate experience, that there's this third region where we are able to um, to create an experience of illusion that is an admixture, you know, of, of, inner of the inner and the outer. And the outer, and ways in which uh, this is where we. Uh, he thinks of religious life really as as carried out uh, in this intermediate realm, uh, where we're able to uh, to really um, experience what he thinks of as a holding and uh, and allow ourselves to to co-create an experience. So we both get outside of ourselves in religious life, but also remain ourselves. Yes, that's. I do think I wonder if our like our tradition, which is word-based, rational, liberal Protestantism, might benefit from his insights in liturgically, and might think not that we want to necessarily start blowing bubbles on a Sunday morning, but if we think of that imagistically as um, you know, where are we creating the space for a deep experience of breath, of bubbles, of light? in our worship life together rather than it operating purely in the realm of possibility and idea, which I think is where we, and word where we get, we get stuck there. And maybe that comes back to singing. 
I think of a photograph in a church bulletin on a Sunday where there's, uh, I believe, a, a child uh, jumping uh, in a fire bonfire, I believe. Yeah. Um, and uh, now I think um, ways in which ritual can potentially create certain kinds of experience. All the way from Minneapolis, here's Doug Padgett. And one of the hard things, you know, when you're when you don't have a, a belief system of distinction and segregation, like we don't tend to around Salma's porch, it gets a little harder to identify the outsider and reach and figure out how you're going to reach them to make them an insider. And it's because you don't think of them as an outsider. So it's a different kind of hospitality and it's a different kind of posturing if you're not trying to solve the problem that you have what they need, but that you have a gift, they have a gift. And if we exchange gifts, you know, sort of metaphorically and literally, if we exchange gifts, we would all be better people. That's, um, that, that plays out in some really different ways uh, for, for us in our community. So I think we're doing an awful lot of evangelism, not making any distinction between Christians self-professing Christians and people who don't necessarily profess as Christians. What does it look like to preach this way? So you strip out this boundary between pulpit and pew, um, and then you've also worked to integrate the voice of the preacher into the congregation in a non-hierarchical way. What does that look like in a worship service at Solomon's Porch? So it can look a couple of ways. When we stay in the room together. Uh, sometimes we, like in the last few weeks, we've done this and we, we'll do this on a rhythm of three or four weeks on and three or four weeks off. People have choices of different kinds of sermons they can go to, a discussion sermon, a creative, creating something sermon time, a contemplative meditative time, or a presentation. Mm. Are these running concurrently or okay. are they? So people will break up into different parts of the building and different people host those sermon experiences and sometimes we stay together and and the same there's a few i don't know if they're, i'm not comfortable really calling them sort of principles or uh, something like this but there are some practices that come into play and that is the assumption that everyone has a contribution to make to this sermon they may not choose to share it or they may not choose to share it all in the same way but people have a contribution to make. So one of the things that I'll do if I'm leading a, a more of a of a guided sermon where we're all in a space together, so last Sunday or something, I will start out by asking people if they would share, and sometimes they'll share it out loud to everybody in the room, sometimes they'll share it to each other, sometimes they'll just share it with themselves, right? They'll just do a little cognitive work. What they already know or think about the topic that we're gonna be talking about. So. This last week, the sermon was uh, Luke chapter four. So I asked people to talk about what do you already think about this? What do you already know about it? What's familiar with you? Just the act of asking people to catalog what do you already know is a revolutionary act for most preachers, right? From my home city of Chicago, here's Julian DeChazier. Kennedy as an artist nurtured in the church, Yes. As an MC, it was nurtured. Yeah, in the no, church. I mean, there, there were uh, youth pastors there, Reverend James King and Elise Barrymore, and folks who were really supportive and said, that was the first time I got on stage and did a rap was at a church because the pastor said, 
hey, you want to come do something? Like, uh, <laughs> I guess. You know I'm not like... I, I told him, uh, and, and the intelligence that all teenagers have, right, and our total self-awareness, you know I'm not a Christian, right? Because <laughs> like, I, I thought I was like 5% nation of Islam because Wu-Tang was, you know, with the gods of the earth and all. Like, that, I was really into that. So you were into that theology? Well, I was deep into hip-hop culture and didn't even know it was theology, but that worldview, that way of seeing the world, that kind of anger and all of that I had as a teenager, and it was the openness of the, those youth pastors to say, just come here, just come hang out. Okay, you rap, so come rap one day. Just, you know, don't don't curse it up. Like, keep it clean, but... Come do what you do. I mean, if I was to make like a drill music song, which is a, a genre of music and really like in the streets, in the hood in Chicago on the South Side and West Side. Um, so as nationally sort of like the spotlight in hip hop has fallen on Chicago through drill artists, exactly. you, could, you could sort of dive into that. Exactly. Sell yourself if out. I, if, I, if I said, okay, I need, you know, I have X amount of fans, followers, likes, whatever, but I, I need to double that. The the smartest way is to go in and to make a song that sounds like the other songs that are being made right now. It just doesn't fit me. It just doesn't fit me. And I think as a preacher, I experienced that same thing where it's like, okay, coming out of the black tradition, you need three points. You need to hoop. You need, to, and it just never fit me. It was and being okay with what didn't fit, and being willing to try it sometimes to know that it didn't fit, and being willing to pursue a new kind of way, a new kind of cadence. All of that came, I think, out of my experience as a musician from 11, 12 years old of trying voices and saying, "No, that doesn't work." From down in New Orleans, here's Sean Anglim, because it's a very visionary move that you made to integrate a white and a black church it never that never happens right um i mean especially first methodist and grace which is in uh, a fairly impoverished part of the city and at the same time there's a pragmatism to what you're doing too right it's it kind of makes sense you've got two partially ruined buildings two declining congregations, both in the middle of probably the biggest period of change that they'd ever had in their own histories. Um, so on the, it's interesting. On the one hand, what you're describing feels like a bold thing and a risk, and I'm sure it was both. And on the other hand, it also feels like a bit of a no-brainer. That's right. That's exactly right. And, the, and I think, the question, though, for me, the, 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 re, the question that helped was this is about our city. It's not just about our survival. Of course, it's about our survival, but it's about what is the church going to be? What is what is what is the opportunity that God is opening up after the storm? The storm has happened. It's devastated us. Are we just putting things back together the way they were? Which is what most place places did. It's very tempting to do that. You know, you can look behind you and see very clearly what you want in front of you. Or you can look in front of you and say, this is the dream, and we're going to walk out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, the moment you walk out of Egypt, the euphoria of that turns into, why did you bring us out here to die? Uh, you know, there's uh, adventures are wonderful, but there's a lot of uh, mountaintop views and a lot of uh, valleys of death, you know, as you move through those early days. But the 12 steps have been very powerful to me in the past three years, and it's 
be, really become my spiritual discipline. I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic or, or, or an addict in recovery, but there is, there is a, a deep spiritual clarity to the 12 steps that has made me much more self-aware, gives you concrete tools to work with, daily faith in God really looks like and how you live that in your relationships uh, and gives you, you know, community to work it out with as well. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think my preaching has become much, much more um, disciplined and it needed to. One of our most popular interviews is with Nadia Boltz Weber. Conservative is an understatement. It was sectarian. Colorado Springs, right? Yeah, Church of Christ in Colorado Springs. Like we were taught that we were the only Christians. We were the only people going to heaven. And um, so so that sectarian type, that really heavy ideology and that fundamentalism, part of me loves that kind of thinking. Like I love chocolate. Like I love being right and showing how everyone else is wrong. But that never saves me ever. And 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 whether it's really like fundamentalism of the right or fundamentalism of the left, I find that they're they're both almost always lacking two things, which I can't do without in life, and that's joy and humility. I'm such a pastoral preacher. Like preaching to me is a pastoral act, and so um, I, I am caring for them in my preaching. I am trying to show them how they might be in bondage in the same way I'm in bondage, and then to give them words of freedom and hope. So um, I find that people I, I, people don't have, I haven't really experienced much like pe- people being offended by my preaching in my parish or anything like that. Have your own voice, you know, and, and don't quote other people all the time. <laughs> you know, like you have enough to say. You don't have to borrow you know, Anne Lamott's authority. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, like, you know, like, you have enough of your own. It's all in there. Do the work. Like, excavate it. Here's my friend, retired pastor and church consultant, Tony Robinson. When I, when I started preaching, I was, I was uh, arrogant enough to think I had something important to say that people need to listen to. And, and then I kind of had an, a, a an attack of anxiety about that, which was, uh, well, uh, actually, you, you don't have that much to say, and now you're going to be called upon to say something every week. How in the world are you going to do that? And uh, so I got uh, kind of anxious about that. And then in my first kind of experiences of regular preaching, I was uh, I was serving a, a small Presbyterian church in upstate New York while going to school at Union Seminary. And um, and and the preaching uh, class that I was a part of, then a biblical preaching seminar, uh, the the professor was very much into emphasizing, you know, you've got to listen to the text, and you've just got to live with it, and you've got to uh, you've got to you've got to um, struggle with it, uh, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, uh, this is the bread of life, and you've got to chew it, and you've got to break it open. And uh, so that was new to me, and I found that I found that very interesting and a, and a good challenge to the idea that I would just go kind of, uh, uh, you know, 
glean something out of the New York Times or out of what I'd been reading lately, and then I would scatter these pearls of wisdom over the uh, over the congregation. No, uh, they weren't that interested in that, properly so. They were interested in somebody who they gave the time and the privilege of time to to, to listen to the scripture on their behalf and to uh, and really ask that old question, is there a word from the Lord? But I, I, I would say that I think in the, in the 50s, maybe in the 60s, there was a kind of security uh, in the church, in the pulpit, uh, that uh, isn't there today. And that cuts two ways. Um, it, it, and by two ways, I mean, one, on one hand, it, it, I think you see people trying things uh, with, a, with a kind of... Um, uh, of, of self uh, disclosure and uh, in, and and a kind of experimentalism and maybe an edgy quality to it that that, that can be very good in terms of content, content and presentation. Uh, but it also cuts the other way is that sometimes people seem to me to be bending over backwards to um, uh, to uh, look. Um, interesting or to be doing something different for different sake. I mean, there's an awful lot of people today that seem to be wandering around uh, the sanctuary as they preach. And um, most of those that I've heard doing that, uh, I I wish they would just uh, focus more on what they're what they're saying and less on how they're saying it. I I think the for me, at least, the message has driven the 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 medium of communication. If I have something to say, if God has given me something to say that feels exciting or important, then the rest of it kind of will take care of itself. Sure, I can always uh, tweak it. But if you haven't got something to say. Next up, the author of my own personal favorite book on preaching, Paul Scott Wilson. And then I read your book and it gave me this framework that that What's the trouble in the text? What's a corresponding trouble in the world or the context in which one preaches today? Where is the grace in the text? And where is a corresponding grace for our world, for our context, for our church, for the problem that we're, that we're trying to address? Um, what did, in order to get there to that very like surprisingly simple idea what led you to that? What did you hear that made you think we need to be a little more direct? Mm, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether to start with a story about my grandmother. Maybe maybe that's where I should start. Uh, when we were children growing up in Alberta, my dad was a minister, and, and we didn't have any relatives out, out that way. My grandmother from Northern Ireland would come and visit us every couple of years. And I always anticipated her visits with a, a mixture of feelings. On the one hand, I was I loved her and was glad to see her, and she was a relative, and 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 that was very positive. And then on the other hand, Granny always insisted that we get together for devotions every day. And this was she would come and visit us during the summer, so I would be out playing baseball with friends on the street or whatever, and. And uh, I would have to come in for these devotional times. And we would read, my sisters and I, from that United Methodist publication, The Upper Room, 
uh, one of us would read the Bible passage and one would read the little story and another would lead the prayer. And um, I, I resented that at the time. And yet as an adult, I have come to so value that time because it was, it was my Granny Scott who first taught me about the meaning of grace. Um, she, I had asked her about how did my grandfather die? I had never met him. He died before I was born. And she told me that he was a minister in, in Granby, Quebec, and that uh, he would work on his sermons every morning. And one morning he was up there and Granny was getting the lunch ready. And by the time that lunch was ready, she called him. He, was, he, he didn't answer. And uh, she called him a second time, Thomas. And again, he didn't answer. So the third time she called and didn't get a response. She went upstairs and uh, walked down the hall toward his study. And his study door was closed. And that was normal. Um, and then as she put her hand on the doorknob, she heard a distinct voice, and it wasn't his voice. And the voice said, my grace is sufficient unto thee. And she opened the door, and she found her husband dead. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been working on his sermon, and he had slumped over the roll-top desk. And she said that because she heard that voice, she was sustained not just through the time of initial grief and funeral and so on, but she was sustained for the rest of her life because she understood that God's grace was sufficient unto thee. And, and uh, so she was the one who, in those sessions, taught me about grace, about the importance of grace, that grace is, is something that God gives to us. It's, it's unmerited. It's just total free grace and empowerment. It's saving action. It's, it's uh, strengthening action for our ministries and so on. Here's two preachers who are friends and support one another in dialogue with each other, Jennifer Morrow and Timothy Ross. So I was a couple, well, more than a couple, several months into my first uh, full-time senior pastorate. And so it was the first several months that I'd been preaching every single Sunday. And I, I wrote Tim an email and I said, oh man, I'm really tired of my own voice. I really miss hearing somebody else preach. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I need some encouragement. I need s something. And I think what I was looking for really in that email was just, yeah, I know how you feel. I get it. I've been there. I, I'm actually currently there, and it's okay. You're not alone. You know, you're not the only one that feels that way. And I don't think either of us really went into it early on with with any particular long-term expectations. Um, but it's been really wonderful to see how it's developed. That was seven years ago now. Um, and so now our weekly collaboration happens um in a in a much more disciplined way and in a much fuller way than it really did at the beginning. So, um, in those seven years, we've we've worked on sermon series together. We are very disciplined and accountable to one another in terms of our 
getting together, talking through the scriptures, even if one of us happens not to be preaching that particular Sunday, we still meet um, and do you do electronically. This, you do it via email? We do. It's a little bit of both. Right now, I mean, typically what we do is we speak on the phone once a week and then the the back and forth collaboration and that and, and in that phone call we'll talk about the texts we'll you know throw out a couple of like tim said narrative angles that we're working on or um a theme that stands out for us and then once we've had that call then we email back and forth for the rest of the week. And what started as sending one another finished work has developed into sending one another unfinished work and um, really offering our um, support or thoughts or feedback in the process of the writing and not just once it is complete. Next up, the wisdom of David Bartlett. But when I'm studying and teaching now and when I'm getting ready to preach, I have to say, all right, how, how do I find in this text a word that will actually convict people to a deeper sense of who they are and who God is? Because if that's not the case, then the, then the text, they're right about this. The text is just kind of a relic of an old-fashioned time, and we need to move on to some kind of post-Christian religiosity. Do you feel that Which, pull in liberal Protestant churches to to want to go to that place? I feel in liberal Protestant churches the sense that we got there already and we might as well face it. Um, yes, so that's a little different. It's, uh, people aren't necessarily thrilled by this, but I think they in in several of the churches where I've served, large number every church is is highly diverse. And there, any any kind of mainline Protestant thing from from orthodoxy to Unitarianism has been present in any congregation where I've served. But I think the sense that that the Bible is a nostalgically valuable part of our past, as opposed to a vital resource for our present and source for our future, is alive and well in lots of Protestant churches where I've served and preached. Is alive and well. Is alive and well. There's a lot of sense that that was our parents' book or our grandparents' book. It's very good for us to, to get a sense of what it is to be more marginalized, more sectarian, less the mainstream. But I don't want to romanticize that either. I'm, I'm not sure that we should be delighted by the fact that nobody pays attention any longer. A vivid memory of my youth was when my father was engaged in a major tussle with one of the leaders of our church around, I think, really important theological and social issues. And I said to the youth minister, who was one of my mentors, that uh, I was amazed that I would hear my father sitting around the dinner table saying, if I have to talk to that man one more time, I'm simply going to scream. The phone rings. It's that man. And my father says, well, hello, Joe. What can I do for you? And and my friend, the youth minister, said, that's not cowardice. That's integrity. Mm. And I thought, that's smart, right? I, I would have yelled at him, but that wasn't necessarily the braver thing to do. It may have just been the more self-indulgent thing to do. And there's a way in which the persona can be a way of trying to stay Christian, even when your gut is saying, oh, just spit at the guy and move on. You've got a certain kind of distancing from from uh, uh, anything that looks to them like undue piety for the Bible. But in, in, the, in Connecticut, that's just drifted away. There's no, nobody ever got up one day and said, I've got to get away from this. It just becomes, for our culture, 
sadly, I think, increasingly less pertinent. In the South, there's that deliberate moment where you say, okay, this is how the Bible has been preached all these years, and I can't do that any longer, so where can I stand? So there's an act of renunciation. It's an act of renunciation, and, and of courage at some points. And and I, people would, in, in Connecticut, when I kind of bring back the Bible, they think I'm quaint. In the South, they sometimes think I'm dangerous because it brings back an awful lot of stuff they've learned to hate. I think it's a tricky balance, and I I think there's not it's not a one way balance either. I, I I think for all of us there's some kind of combination of scripture and experience, and that that we can be enriched by by looking at the part of our lives that needs enrichment. In the churches where I've been, and I, this is just this is just totally confessional autobiographical, uh, the religious experience stuff's been pretty good, and the Bible's been pretty thin. And I I want to say those aren't mutually contradictory bring your experience and see your experience in light of the bible but i'm after 52 years or whatever i've been doing this thing i actually haven't begun to get exhausted with the text here's brad braxton in african-american churches uh, there still are very problematic notions of understandings of the relationship between a pastor and a congregation. I certainly want to say I think there's some wonderful elements of it that are also instructive for other traditions as well. But I think part of the challenge has to do with the deep understanding of messianic leadership, as it were, that's kind of ingrained in African-American culture, such that uh, African-American pastors benefit at times from... um, a very robust sense of their authority as oracles of the sacred in our best moments. And again, all of these things have to be kept in check because that can become overweening and can create a kind of God complex. But I think that the healthy notion that God actually does call women and men to perform important tasks of pastoral leadership, that robust notion is there, but it cuts both ways. And then there's this sense of of putting the pastor on a pedestal, not allowing the pastor's humanity to be honored and the pastor's frailty to be displayed. So it does work itself out in both ways. And um, I'm one, particularly now in this moment of founding a congregation that is working very hard to democratize the authority of the church. So, for example, I talk a lot about how pastoral care is not what the pastor does, it's what the church does. Preaching is not what the pastor does, it's what the church does. And one of the more difficult aspects of founding this congregation has actually been trying to democratize that. I often say I'm giving ministry away by the tons, but because of that deeply ingrained notion of the messianic leader, It's very hard sometimes for congregants, even when there is the attempt to empower them, for them to walk fully in that sense, because there are not only decades, but centuries of acculturation in this model of the messianic leader slash black pastor. You've been one of the more outspoken, most outspoken black church leaders on questions of GLBT equality and same sex (laughs) marriage. Has that, as you've tried to, as you've been growing a church and building a church, even in the midst of that advocacy, would you say that's been a hindrance, a blessing? How has that affected this effort? 
It has been a marvelous blessing in the sense that that kind of diversity and clarity of witness are what I believe it means to be a community that can bear Jesus' name. <laughs> so it's, it's precisely when you blow a clear trumpet like this and do it in a way that is inclusive of all of the sacred siblings that that for me begins to approximate what Jesus was doing. Mm. So it's not abstract, right? The gift of this particular historical moment is, all right, here's here's what we hang this on. Yes, that is exactly right. So I, I count it all joy, and I also say this very candidly. I am always aware that if we were not so clear, for example, on the moral and civic equality of LGBT persons, I believe our congregation, right now we have about 125 active folks. We have a much larger database of folks who've come and been a part along the journey, but we would probably have a congregation two to three times larger. And now, Emily McGinley. When you create your congregation or your your, uh, faith space for folks, you also create the help to create the culture. And so um, at at my site in particular, um, it's especially... uh, diverse um, in a lot of different ways. We've got folks who come from Pentecostal, charismatic type backgrounds to Catholics to uh, mainline Protestants to non-denominational evangelicals. A few folks who I think would probably um, at best be agnostic. Um, And I'm like pretty explicitly Jesus-y in my sermons, but I also um, try to acknowledge the, uh, the sort of mystery of of we don't really know, but this is what this is what scripture uh, or this is what the context shows us. This is what you know. My reading and and reflecting um, both on scripture and the world that we live in, and the conversations that I'm having with congregants. Um, this is what I'm seeing come out, and let's talk about that. Um, and it's okay to it's okay if you don't agree with me. Um, there have been a and there have been a couple of times um, when it has been appropriate in a sermon where I might have said um, something like. You know, lots of people have interpreted this passage in different ways because we all know that there are different ways that people that this same passage can be interpreted, right? Um, and then people, you know, like I kind of have to prompt a, a right from people um, so that way everyone can kind of get comfortable with feeling, especially those who come from a church tradition where what pastor said was true, you know, the right interpretation. And I want to free them from that to be able to say, no, you know, the spirit is at work within you as well. Um, and and so let's wrestle with all the different interpretations and lenses that we bring to maybe get a truer re- reflection of, of who God is and, and how God is in this world. And finally, from the hills of western Massachusetts, the mountains even, Liz Goodman. What is it like to preach for that many years to a group of people whom you must know really, really well by now, like individually on a mm-hmm. on a on a intimate level. Um, right. What is that like? Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> um, I am, I love this church so much and, um, I, uh, it, I, I somehow don't feel constrained 
not to say things if I know that this is going to be, this is going to strike Mary's hearing one way, or I imagine that, um, that this is going to be, uh, this is going to resonate with Stephanie in a particular way. Or, I mean, I, I really do know the people that well, as you say. It doesn't constrict me. If anything, it feels like um, uh, since, since the relationship has been so long and so steady, it feels like the hard things that I might say or that I might have said to me um, can be held because the, because the relationship will outlast whatever hard thing. And I'm not talking about a hard thing like some sort of social justice, um, prophetic speech kind of thing, but a small thing that I know that, like I know that when I say the word remembrance, as in do this in remembrance of me, I hear it in one way and that I know this one parishioner hears it in another way. Like that, that level of uh, speech where I understand how people understand words that I might understand differently and will you will continue to use anyway. Um, and so um, I, I just feel like the, the, the length and the steadiness of the relationship, that, that part of what we are, what is happening with us when we gather together, part of what's happening is that we are putting yet another layer of, um, of commitment um, on our relating and our relationships. And so I can say something that might upset or might challenge or might just fall flat and um, have it be held, um, which is so lacking in our culture. Um, you know, I mean, all, we all know, we all know how relationship is so fleeting now um, that to have long-standing ones that, that are deeply loving and deeply, sometimes deeply difficult and, and ultimately the most important thing there is, is such a gift. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thornby.